It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Manveen. In the week between Christmas and New Year, we're listening back to some of our favourite episodes of 2022. In today's episode, which was first broadcast in September, Jenny Kleeman explores the impact of a global cultural juggernaut. Ten years ago this summer, a South Korean rapper would make history when his music video became a worldwide viral sensation. Gangnam Style has become the first video to clock up a billion views on YouTube. Psy paved the way for K-culture to break records across music, film and TV over the next decade. Now to a show that has taken the world by storm, Squid Game. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. But why has the K-wave taken off so spectacularly? And what are the forces driving it? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, how the K-wave swept the globe. If you've heard Bombay Yar, it's like the kind of, uh, well, I can't really show it to you on a podcast, but I'm waving my arms around in the air. We'll come back to Boombaya, but the invisible dancer guiding us through K-culture today is... My name is Josh Glancy. I am special correspondent for the Sunday Times, which I don't really know what that means, but that's what I do. <laughs> it's a pretty broad uh, portfolio. But it means you get to go on exciting trips like the one you did recently. You went to Seoul. Tell us about that. What did you see there? The V&A Museum have a very strong career department and they are doing a big exhibition on Hallyu, which is the Korean wave of culture from pop music to movies to TV to food to beauty that has swept over the world really in the last 20, but particularly the last sort of five, 10 years. I went with them to Seoul for a week to, to find out more really. And it was interesting because it's a place I've always wanted to go, but got to spend a week there meeting Everyone from pop stars to management executives to movie stars to fashion designers and artists and really sort of immersed myself in Korean culture. Paint us a picture. What did you see there? So I went to a few K-pop studios. I went to a couple of the management studios. One's called SM. You sort of walk in and there are probably 50 foot high television screens showing what they call the K-pop idols dancing and singing at you. So it is, and it is truly kind of idolatrous. And then you go up 
20 flights and you come out and there's a sort of huge fluffy pink carpet. It's all very cutesy. And you get to see these incredibly slick swish offices where they produce a lot of the music, where they have the choreography studios, where they do all the marketing and they have their own fizzy drink and they have their own books and they're constantly giving you freebies, t-shirts, mugs. I went to a dance class, a place called One Million Dance Studio in, in Seoul for teenagers and they're queuing up in their hundreds to learn the moves. Mm. Uh, not really because any of them expect to become stars. They just want to learn to dance like, you know, Jenny from Blackpink or whoever. And the SM building where I visited, there were recently a series of uh, light tremors in the earth uh, around in the area. And they got a bunch of experts in. And the diagnosis was that the group dancing that had been happening in the choreography studios has actually caused the earth to uh, start shaking. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of how seriously they take it all. Korean culture has clearly been shaking the world, literally and metaphorically. But where does it come from? What are the influences on this K-way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's a fusion of old pre-existing Korean culture, but with kind of modern influences. They were very influenced by the Japanese wave of the 90s and J-pop kind of came to prominence. And, and they're very influenced by America. You know, America still has large troop deployments in Korea. It still sort of underwrites security in the aftermath of the Second World War during the Korean War and afterwards that America had an enormous presence in Seoul in particular and for much of the city was taken up by the American base and so American programs were on television American culture was quite dominant in, in South Korea at the time and what they've quite cleverly done really in, in the decade since is fuse American culture with all their old Korean stories uh, with some Japanese influences and basically Koreanize it into a product that is both sort of accessible to the Westerner, if you like, or accessible to the global citizen, but also very conspicuously Korean. Is Chinese culture or, or Korea's relationship with China a factor in this? Yeah, so Korea has a somewhat difficult relationship with China. The resentment or tension in Korea really is held more towards Japan and Japan colonised Korea for the first half of the 20th century quite brutally uh, and would try and stamp out Korean culture, Korean language. They destroyed the Korean royal family. And memories run pretty deep of that period uh, and what the Japanese did to them. And if you watch, there's a lot of Korean historical dramas about that period and the resistance. I think they hold quite a lot of difficult feelings towards the Japanese. But equally, they are neighbours. I think they have admired some aspects of Japanese business and culture and sought to outdo them in some ways. And in some ways, they've succeeded. Even today, the Korean War is an important part of shaping South Korea's national identity. Enormously so. I mean, it, it obviously, it split the country broadly in half. And it's quite strange because this is the same people, the same ethnicity, the same language groups. And then you have this nuclear test going on. There's this kind of existential threat that sits right on the border. They draw a lot on their historical trauma, but also on their present. There's one show I like called Crash Landing on You. Which is about a spoiled Korean heiress who 
is in a hang gliding accident and accidentally sails over the border and lands on a sort of gruff Korean army captain and and they fall in love and it really sort of explores the tensions that exist across the border and and it's something that's always there in the back of people's minds. This cultural explosion that has come out of Korea over the past 20 years has been coupled with a a big expansion in South Korea's role in, in the global economy since the 90s. Tell us about that. Yeah, South Korea was astonishingly poor. Um, I say astonishingly because it, it's now about the 15th biggest economy in the world and, and a, a pretty successful place. But until the 70s, it was poorer than North Korea. Uh, and it was one of the poorest countries in the world. And it was mostly just agricultural, even subsistence farming. And then everything changed. Primarily, that was during the 80s and 90s and what they called the miracle on the Han. The Han River is runs through Seoul. And it was really through the adoption of technology. It was quite protectionist, so they didn't do a huge amount of trading. They really focused on upgrading their economy internally. And these companies, the most famous one is, of course, Samsung. Hyundai, obviously, is another one, LG. And they've just, they're, they're called the Chaibol, these big corporations. They're enormously powerful in Korea. And it's just been an explosion. Not everyone has benefited from it. There's a lot of inequality because some people got richer than others. But Seoul went from being a sort of war-damaged, fairly poor place to a very brisk, wealthy, well-run, modern global city, which is what it is today. As technology flourished, the government also took inspiration from Hollywood to boost the country's global standing. This is what's known as the Jurassic Park theory of Hallyu. The Korean government in 1993 noticed that Jurassic Park, the movie, had made more money for Universal Pictures than Hyundai had made uh, from their cars that year. And they realized that not only was there a lot of cultural prestige attached to this soft power, but there was actually a lot of hard money attached to it too. And so that was supposedly when they started investing in the promotion of Korean culture. Josh, I want to drill down into what the K-Wave actually is, all these different elements of Korean culture that have come to dominate the globe. Could you talk us through the greatest hits? The real roots of K-Wave go back all the way into the 90s, really. There was a group called the Cytogen Boys who went on the equivalent of kind of Korean pop idol and started busting out a kind of hip-hop influence, K-pop. And a lot of people were horrified at the time, but it was a bit like Dylan going electric. It was the kind of birth of a new sound. It, It initially succeeded very much in Japan and China. It was a big early band. Girls' Generation was one, and they had a lot of success with their famous first single, Into the New World. I think that was about 2007. And the real turning point, and certainly in terms of Western appreciation of Korean culture, was Gangnam Style by Psy. Open Gangnam Style! So 2012 was when Gangnam Style dropped which I think is probably still the most viral music video of all time. It was an astonishing success. Psy, the singer, rapper behind it, was a bit of a, not quite a joke figure in Korea, but he certainly was seen as a bit of a cringer. 
Koreans. Gangnam is the very sort of wealthy central area in Seoul, so it has quite a lot of cultural resonance. And the whole thing was slightly a parody. And there's a slight irony in the Korean government and Korea in general was very keen to launch its culture on the world. But the vehicle that really achieved it was actually this silly YouTube song with a guy prancing about like a donkey. And you can never quite anticipate in life where your success is going to come from. It showed, I think, that they had cracked virality. Korea is a highly digital culture, fastest broadband in the world, as people will often tell you. And very early into social media, they had a, a social media called SciWorld, which was out even before Facebook. And so people were very accultured to internet, uh, virality, producing their own content and posting it. And after Gangnam, I think there was a real explosion and you started to have bands like BTS come along with singles like Boy With Love, um, Butter, which is just enormous. Smooth like butter, like criminal undercover. Don't pop like trouble, breaking into your heart like that. Cool shade, yeah, owe it all to my mother. High like summer, yeah, making you sweat like that. BTS are obviously the mega band. I mean, they've currently suspended play, so to speak. They've said they've gone on a break, but they are one of the biggest bands in the world of the last decade. It's been estimated that they bring $5 billion a year into the Korean economy. They are idolized beyond even the level of the other K-pop bands. I slightly prefer Blackpink, who are the biggest girl band, burnishing my credentials as a feminist, but I actually slightly prefer their music. Blackpink came along with singles like Bumbaya, and since then it's really grown and grown. I met a band called 80s in Seoul, who are supposedly the new BTS, although that's obviously how lots of people would like to characterize themselves but they were lovely guys incredibly polite much friendlier than you would find from a your average american boy band and uh, they just sold out wembley in london and been on a big european tour so there's real strength and depth in the k-pop industry what are the kind of big k-wave programs films that have had global domination there were TV shows that have been very successful in China and Japan. There was Old Boy, you might remember the 2003 movie, sort of typically noirish Korean violent movie that had quite a lot of cut through. The one that really cut through and everyone will remember was Parasite, which won the Oscar in 2019. Parasite has six Academy Award nominations and is the first film not in the English language to win Best Picture. Winning four Oscars tonight. Parasite was by the director Bong Joon-ho. It's not quite an art house movie, but it, it's a long way from a blockbuster. It's dark. It's about a family that move into another family's rich home and try and take it over, basically. And then all sorts of strange, horrible things happen. And it ends typically in a sort of violent denouement. <laughs> and 
it really struck a chord in terms of inequality, which I think is a big issue across the world in recent years. Korea, as I said earlier, has a lot of inequality and the relationship between the two families, the wealthy family and the poor family, there's a famous flooding scene. And the poor area of Seoul, where the poor family live, gets flooded and it's disgusting, the loo floods. It's just horrifying. But as I said, there's been loads of others. Netflix is awash with these shows now because there's, there's been all sorts of deals cut with Netflix and Hulu and other platforms to provide Korean drama. The obviously other huge one was Squid Game, which is Netflix's most watched show ever. And just, again, had this kind of real dark current, a lot about kind of competition. Korea is an incredibly competitive society academically competitive, quite cutthroat in its ambition. And Squid Game really captured that in quite sort of dark terms. And there are other ones. I quite like one called Kingdom, which is a zombie show. And Snowpiercer was another Bong Joon-ho one that got remade as an American show. It's really become incredibly mainstream. And there's more to the K-Wave than just music and film. There's also food fashion. Talk us through that. Is there a particular South Korean aesthetic across all of these? It's a good question. I think there is. And I think it goes back to something I said earlier, which is it's this kind of strange fusion of a lot of Western influences that have then been heavily Koreanized. And so, for example, I met a Korean fashion designer in Seoul called Chai Kim, lovely prince. And she's fascinated by William Morris and like Liberty and quite elaborate British prints. But then she merges them with something called hanbok, which is the traditional Korean dress, which actually that word just got put in the Oxford English Dictionary, and makes these beautiful scarves and dresses which fuse these two influences. I think that's quite typical of what we've seen. The food, Korean barbecue and Korean fried chicken, bulgogi, bibimbap, all that sort of thing, you find everywhere now. And there's the famous story about the kimchi and the lunchbox, which you hear from so many people that when Western Koreans went to school, everyone would laugh at them. What's this disgusting, smelly, fermented, spicy cabbage thing that they've got in their lunchbox? Now, obviously, kimchi is the sort of trendiest garnish going. And I think that kind of embodies the shift in people's perceptions of Korea. Coming up, the heavy price South Korean stars pay to get to the top and how the government is getting involved. That's in just a moment. I'm Alice Thompson, a columnist and interviewer at The Times. It's the best job in the world. I get to interview the most extraordinary people, from Bill Gates to James Dyson, and the last interview with the incredible Deborah James. I also get to comment on the most fascinating news stories, travel to the most bizarre places, and inform, analyse, infuriate and entertain. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've heard about the corporations known as chaibols that flourished in the technology revolution. Today, they also have a significant influence on South Korea's culture, too. Samsung and, and Hyundai, I think, both sponsored BTS. And I think what K-pop, what it's really mastered is fan service. And I think Western music, for example, is still quite focused on this idea of the artists expressing themselves and that we then buy into that. And it's a sort of artist-first approach in a lot of cases, not always. But with K-pop, it really is, let's give the fans exactly what they want all the time. They produce masses of music, Christmas specials, annuals, calendars. There's just, it's a relentless production line. And I think they've really mastered the nature of modern fandom, which is for a lot of people an obsession. And a lot of that is the big management companies who are, very successful corporations in their own right. Big Hit Entertainment, who run BTS, SM, who I visited. These are major players in the Korean economy now. But giving fans what they want means having a lot of control, doesn't it? And a lot of these corporations have quite a tight grip on the K-pop stars that make music for them. Tell us about the toll that has taken on K-pop and K-drama stars. It's incredibly apparent that the power lies almost exclusively with the management companies that NBC studios that I visited, they mentioned to me that there'd been a sort of new law saying that they could only work, I don't know, 55 hours a week or something because they, prior to that, people had just been doing sort of hundred hour weeks filming and to drive, driving people into the ground. The work ethic is ferocious for the K-pop stars. They get signed up at as young as 12, 13, they become trainees this high school receiving a $11 million budget to specialize in K-pop education. Students take classes in all things related to K-pop, dancing, choreography, vocal and music writing, learning skills to play with various instruments, all free paid tuition. They are worked ferociously hard. The choreography is relentless, the fitness that comes with it, and it takes over their lives and obviously not all of them make it. So some get spat out without getting into a big band, having devoted years of their lives to it. But also those who do make it still are under very tight control, particularly early on. They don't necessarily get paid that much. People will tell you of quite famous band members still working in coffee shops because all the money's going to the management company. There have been suicides and Korea has a very high suicide rate anyway. I think partly as a reflection of its kind of intensity and the work ethic there. So I wouldn't say it's the happiest of industries or indeed the happiest of countries, despite its success. I'm not sure happiness is the real driver (laughs) of the Korean wave. 
And, and you talk about how many of these films, programs have dark themes, vengeance comes into it quite a lot. Does that tie into that sense of national identity that you talked about earlier? Yeah, I think it does. Yuni Hong, who's a, a writer, Paris-based writer, who wrote a wonderful book called The Birth of Korean Cool. And her theory on it is there's this idea in Korea of Han and Han as this sort of ancestral sadness and, and sort of anger. Her theory is that, you know, a lot of Koreans carry Han and that it comes out in their movies and their TV shows. Have you ever seen the movie John Wick, the Keanu Reeves trilogy? That's partially based on a Korean film called The Man From Nowhere. And it's the ultimate revenge fantasy. And so many Korean films seem to involve revenge and violence. Uni's view is that you can root that quite obviously in the trauma of the 20th century, which for Korea was a horrendous time. Japanese colonization and then war and civil war and partition. And it would be surprising if some of that didn't find its way into the culture. And I think someone told me that they estimate that Korea has been invaded by Japan and China a total of 400 times in its history. I'm not quite sure how that's been counted, but it's either way, it's a big number. Uh, and you can see that there might be some sort of lingering uh, sentiment over that. The soft power that South Korea has because of this cultural explosion is very significant. Is this an organic thing that just comes from good things being shared with the world? Or is the government involved? Has the government decided to use this power to change South Korea's position in the world? So it's a really good question. It's something I discussed a lot with people when I was out in Seoul, because you do get different answers. It's definitely the case that the government is very focused on this. And after its economic miracle was quite keen that there would be a cultural explosion to follow. And I think, as a lot of Koreans do, had a sense that it wanted to prove itself to the world. Korea's always been, in some ways, buffeted between Japan and China, these great powers on its doorstep. And it was known as the shrimp between two whales. and there was a sense that it, Korea wanted to have its have its moment and spread its culture around the world. So there is a lot of investment from the government. A lot of the early K-pop bands and companies get grants. And, they, and this exhibition that's on at the V&A is sponsored by the Korean Ministry of Culture. They have a department of people who are focused on uh, spreading Hallyu and, and promoting it. So I would say it's a combination. I, like all things, it, it wouldn't have got anywhere if the product was rubbish. And... I think there's a lot of organic interest in Korea as something a bit cool, a bit different, a bit exotic. Uh, I think the marketing's very good. I think their focus and drive on quality and on performance is very important too, critical to the success. But clearly there's been quite a planned approach from the government. And there's been political influence deliberately exerted by some of the big names. I and mean, you mentioned Blackpink. They released a message for COP26. As COP26 advocates, we hope you will seize this opportunity. We, Blackpink, and Blinks, our fans, our generation, our world, will be watching and hoping. There's a huge amount of pressure, isn't there, on these young people to be ambassadors for their country as, as well as pop stars? Definitely. I think Korea is a very patriotic place, but it's also quite centrally organised. And I think you are expected to represent your country. The big Korean companies are seen almost as extensions of the government by some people. And similarly, these pop stars, partly because they've had so much government 
support and encouragement are viewed as ambassadors. Hello, we are BTS. Today we're here to speak with President Biden about anti-Asian hate crimes, Asian inclusion and diversity. And I think probably often view themselves as ambassadors for Korea. It's weird, Korea is a country you get used to in, in somewhere like Britain, people will, particularly at the moment, be very negative about Britain. We will all take the piss out of our own country and how rubbish we are at this and that. And you get that in America a lot too. It's very rare in Korea. There isn't a kind of self-deprecation about Korea. People are much more ambitious for their country, I think, in, in that way. I think you are expected to represent Korea and promote Hallyu as that sort of part of your role. Do you think, Josh, that the success of K-Wave maybe says something about Western culture in that we are more likely, perhaps, to look at culture from overseas and see it as equal to ours now? Yuni Hong actually made a really interesting point to me that she was saying that it's broadly agreed upon now that Hollywood has experienced some form of cultural exhaustion and that American culture, which for so long was the kind of gold standard globally, whether we wanted it to be or not, it would be rammed down our throats. But people are getting a bit tired of it. You know, you think about just on, in terms of movies, the sort of 27th Batman remake that we were all told to watch this year. It's enough. And when you compare that to something like Parasite, which has this visceral, quite kind of cutting edge kind of power, you know, it's filled with meaning and purpose as a movie. And I think that contrast is probably part of why Korean culture has exploded too. And I should emphasize it hasn't just exploded in the West. I'm told that Iranian housewives, for example, set their clocks by when the latest K-drama is out. They've had a lot of success in the Philippines, a huge market in China. So they've really, they've found success all over the world. I think the American success is very satisfying. I mean, it, you know, it also reflects globalization, doesn't it? That we, and internet culture, and the fact that there really are no borders on the internet. And I think it probably does maybe reflect that we're a bit tired with our own culture or aspects of it and looking for something a bit fresh. And I would say Korean culture, the K-Wave is, I think fresh is a really good word to describe it. It all feels very new, it feels very box fresh, shiny and um, highly produced. And I think that probably appeals to people in the West. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Kleeman, and my guest, special correspondent at The Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. You can find all of Josh's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Sam Chantarasak and Amy Leibowitz. The executive producers are Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.